Hello and Happy New Year, everyone. Ian here, once again giving Jason the week off. As we prepare for whatever 2021 has in store, we're looking back on a few of our favorite conversations from 2020. In the spirit of trying to keep things on a more positive note, we're looking back on conversations with John Weisswasser and Steve Giordano. We'll be back with our first new episode of 2021 on the 15th of January. First, we revisit our conversation with John Weisswasser. John is a doctor, the drummer for Eagles tribute band Eagle Mania, and a pilot with an engrossing YouTube channel called Life in the Fast Lane. And he joined us to talk about completing the trifecta, landing at Newark, LaGuardia, and JFK during the same flight in a Vans RV8. Welcome back. I am thrilled that we are now joined by Jonathan Weiswasser, who is a man of many talents. He is a doctor. He is the drummer for the Eagle Mania Band, which is a, a tribute to Eagles. And he is also an avid pilot who has a fantastic YouTube channel called Life in the Fast Lane or Life in the FL. Pilots will pick up on that one. And he has joined us today to talk about something that a month or six weeks ago would have been absolutely unthinkable. So we're thrilled to have him here with us today. Jason's going to explain a little bit about what has happened, and then we're going to bring John in to really get into how we made it all happen. So all right. John, thanks so much for joining oh, it's us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for yeah, having welcome me. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for, Thank you. thanks for joining us. So a little background. I'm assuming most anyone who listens to this podcast knows that New York City airspace and the region around New York is some of the busiest in the world. It's incredibly choreographed down to the individual arrival, down to the really 30 to 90 second span that aircraft are allowed to land. We have slot restrictions, so only aircraft that have basically prearranged to be at any one of our airports are allowed to be there. But now that during the COVID pandemic, there's virtually no air traffic on some days. We could go an hour, two, three hours before any arrival or departure at one of our major airports, JFK, LaGuardia, and Newark. So things are a little weird these days. And something that, like Ian said, may have been unthinkable just six weeks ago is now almost commonplace. So one thing in particular is I noticed on April 17th that there was a pilot in a Cessna 182 who was doing the rounds of all three airports. He was he or she was flying to JFK, LaGuardia, and Newark all in the same run, which really shouldn't be possible. Nonetheless, just touching and going or, or doing landings at these airports, but to get such direct routing between the two and three shouldn't be possible. And then a couple of days later, someone pointed me to one of John's videos who actually very well documented the feat of doing this run, which shouldn't be possible. And we just had to have him on the show and really get the behind the scenes of why he did it, how he did it, the difficulties in actually doing it, and basically see how the crown is on the top of his head that he was able to do this almost so easily. <laughs> well, thank you. So, 
the inspiration for this was something that I had heard about going on in the early 90s when I first learned to fly and started flying in the area, which was that people would go at two or three or four in the morning and attempt this. And it could often be done. Obviously, things are very different now. So in light of the absence of air traffic, I thought that the opportunity was ripe to attempt something like this. And I actually, for those of you who may be familiar with my channel, which is all about using an airplane to fly for the band, I wanted to document this and make it a, as an installment on my channel. However, I had to find a way to shoehorn in the band aspect of it. So I was able to come up with a reason to fly down to pretty much a local airport down on the Jersey Shore to drop off a hard drive full of audio files and then make the trifecta, as I call it, a part of my return. So it was almost something that I did as a, at least at first, as a, on a whim. I thought about it on the way down. I listened to New York Approach and Newark Tower. They were, I almost thought I was on the wrong frequency because it was so quiet. And on the way back up, I gave them a call and asked. And the funny moment in the video is, is when the controller actually laughs when I first present this to him. And then I just went ahead and did it. The first time I tried, which is now the video is actually, to be completely honest, and for those of you who are, are going to look up the ADSB track of this, you'll see there's actually two flights. And the first one, which is the one where I went down to Ocean County to drop off these files, that one I was able to get Newark and LaGuardia, and I wasn't able to get Kennedy. So I came back to Caldwell, where I'm based, and I did a little researching to get phone numbers for towers. And I tried to call them a couple days later to let them know I was coming. And when no one picked up, I just said, screw it, I'm going to do it again. And this time I basically retraced my steps. I didn't make an approach from the south, which is what you see on the video. And instead, I came from the west and I got basically a touch and go. I know I say a low approach, but it's a really low approach. I mean, it's about as low an approach as you can get. And I did a touch and go at Newark, LaGuardia. And then when LaGuardia couldn't give me a handoff to Kennedy, I decided to just exit their airspace VFR and give Kennedy a call when I was outside their lowest rung and get a code to come in. And that's how it worked. All pretty outstanding. So looking at the track, you did runway 11 at Newark. Right. You did runway 4 at LaGuardia and 3-1 left. left at JFK, which is a very interesting combination. That's right. Three distinct different directions. That's right. And I'm flying a tail dragger. So that's a very good point. In fact, some of what got edited out is that the winds at Kennedy were not favorable for landing a tail dragger. In fact, there were a slight tailwind, and I'm very picky about that. So if I was actually going to get that tail on the ground and bring it to a stop, I would not have elected to accept a 3-1 runway landing. And so given that I was just going to literally touch the mains down, it didn't bother me as much. But that's a very astute observation you've made. <laughs> no, thank you. So it's definitely 
interesting to me that while the airspace around JFK was very quiet, obviously, it wasn't completely devoid of any other traffic. I think they slotted you in behind a couple cargo heavies. I didn't get exactly what they were, but there was other traffic out there, right? There absolutely was. They were using the parallel runway. So I was coming from basically the east the Northeast. And what was really unusual, I thought, was that he vectored me out towards the shore and got me down to 500 feet. And I've never gotten an instruction from a controller under any circumstance to fly at 500 feet MSL. It's almost, you know, I mean, you could make an argument that that's there's a legal question there whether or not I should be flying that low over in controlled airspace like that. But nonetheless, he brought me down to 500 feet to follow the shoreline beneath the approach path to 3-1 right, where he was landing a lot of larger airplanes. There was a Korean Air or something, and then I don't know if they were cargo or passenger planes or what. But yeah, there was definitely some activity on 3-1 right. So your particular aircraft, and we'll put a link to the show notes to both the video and also the ADSB track, mm-hmm. but you've done some pretty extraordinary modifications to your particular aircraft. And watching the video, your panel Mm -hmm. does not look like most panels look. (laughs) No. Yeah, no, that's true. So the story behind that was that as my band got busier and busier, and I started to look at using an airplane, this is before I had a Meridian, before I bought a Meridian. As I started to look at using the airplane as a great means to get from where I live to a lot of these off the beaten path places that we play, I started thinking I really had fallen out of currency from an instrument point of view. And at the same time, I was thinking about the ADSB mandate. So about three and a half, four years ago, I went to my avionics guy and I asked him about upgrading to ADSB. And at the same time, it's sort of like, while we're there, why don't we upgrade the entire panel? And me being one to kind of take things to an extreme when it comes to things like this, I opted for probably the most technically advanced RV-8 in the fleet. So it has two G3Xs up front and one in the back. So you could actually control the autopilot, the radios, and everything from the rear seat, which is unusual. And as far as its overall capability, it is my Meridian, which is an amazing IFR an instrument platform, the RV is not so great that way. That's a G1000 equipped airplane and my RV can do more from an avionics point of view than the Meridian. So that's, <laughs> that's, which is crazy. That, that's fantastic. Yeah, but that's, that's the wonderful difference between the experimental market and the certified market is that there's so much more technology that is 10 years down the road for the certified market that you can now put into an experimental, which is fortunate, unfortunate, however you want to look at it. Yeah. So what would you say, if you had to pick out one aspect, what was the most difficult aspect of this mission that you went on? The most difficult thing for me was just getting the permission to do it. You have to understand, I do a lot of instrument flying in the Meridian. I'm in and out of Class B airports all the time. So I've become very comfortable 
with interacting with controllers and tower controllers and maneuvering in that environment. So that helped a lot. It helped a lot to know the airspace around New York, which can be complex. I wouldn't call it Southern California, but it's definitely complicated. And the Hudson Corridor is something that I think having familiarity with made a big difference here. But really, for me, the most difficult thing was just getting them to agree to let me do it. Yeah, and I'm looking back at the video now, and I see you you flew over Roosevelt Field on Long Island at about 500 feet, That's which right. is not something right. I've ever seen before that, in any circumstance. Right. Have you ever seen the airspace? I obviously know the answer, but I want to hear you say it. Anyway, have you ever seen the New York City airspace so empty before? Never. No. That was something that really caught me by surprise. I don't know. I assume, Jason, having living around here, you've flown that corridor several times. And it is a real, I mean, it's one of those things that you almost can't enjoy it because you're spending so much time looking around for other traffic and paying attention to where you are in relation to fixed objects. A lot of stuff. seeing and avoiding goes on. That's right. That's right. And the altitude constraints are pretty strict. And so what was unusual about this is I'm flying up the East River and actually enjoying the view. It occurred to me that what was different was I wasn't so consumed and distracted by looking for things that could potentially kill me or I could hit and instead was actually enjoying the view. Wow. This is pretty fascinating to me. And it looks like you did fly right over Newark on the way back too. Yes. So you could have gotten uh, the quadrifecta there if you wanted <laughs> I to. could have. I, in fact, always in retrospect, what I should have done was I should have gassed up and done a touch and go at Teterboro, Philadelphia, and BWI and Dulles. And I have a pin. <laughs> I have the pin, a pin number to, to f- file FRZ flight plans in and out of College Park. And I thought it would be interesting to even try that, to try that trifecta and just see if there was any possibility that with the pin number that they would give me a touch and go at at Reagan, which I've landed at before in a 182, but that was before 9-11. So the things that we're, I think we're seeing are pretty amazing. And I think we're going to keep seeing a bit more. I'm looking forward to whatever you do next. And I hope that you find a way to shoehorn it into something related to the band so that you can put it on the YouTube channel and so that we can watch it. Oh, for sure. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. So this has been great. Jonathan Weisswasser, a doctor, a drummer for Egomania, and a pilot with a great YouTube channel that I, I suggest everyone check out. We'll put a link in the show notes because what he has done is the dream of, I think, a lot of pilots. Yeah, thank you. And and I should say the channel is a little different in that it's really geared towards presenting the decisions, the analysis, and the strategy that go into using a general aviation airplane for an endeavor where you have to be somewhere. And while a lot of pilots have a hard time with having to be somewhere when you're flying, I show how that can be done practically and safely. And what I'm really trying to capture is all of the aeronautical decision making that you don't see in a lot of YouTube content. So hopefully when you're watching the channel and gawking at the three-hour part run, you can learn a thing or two along the way. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. John, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a a great conversation. And if you do anything half as uh, impressive as the (laughs) trifecta, we'll hope to have you back on the show. All right. That would be my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
We now turn back to our chat with Steve Giordano of Jet Test and Transport. Steve and his team are the people you call when you need a handful of 737s moved halfway around the world, or a 777-300ER picked up from India one day, and an ATR-72 moved from North America to Africa the next. Welcome back. We are now joined by Steve Giordano, who is the director of Jet Test and Transport. It is a very well-named company because they test and transport jets. So I want to applaud Steve on a very, very well-named company and welcome him to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Ian and Jason. It's great to be with you guys. You know, I've been a fan of your pod for a while. It's like probably the best uh, AvGeek pod out there. So, <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Steve. And I do love a, a good company name that is what it says it does. Yeah, you know, there's no mystery there. We test and transport. <laughs> and we're going to have a whole lot of questions about what you test and how you transport because this is, I'm excited for this one. This is so interesting. So your company is probably one of a few that does this type of work around the world. And when I say around the world, I mean around the world. You know, you're based on the US East Coast, but you were recently in Australia. I saw that your company was also transporting a turboprop from the western half of the US all the way to Africa roughly at the same time. So give us kind of an overview of what the company does, you know, besides just testing and transporting jets. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so the company is really a global operation, like you said. At any given time during any week, we have operations going on all six of the populated continents. So, uh, you know, we could have five airplanes flying at the same time, which is pretty much, I think the max we've ever had going is like five or six at the same time, but all over the world and all types, like you say, I mean, we'll move uh, dash eights all the way up through triple sevens, seven, four sevens. We have not moved an A380 yet with the exception of the A380 and 350. We have actually moved, I believe every Western designed airliner on the market. So yeah, I live in Philadelphia one of my partners lives in Las Vegas and the other partner lives down in Lexington, Kentucky. And we are essentially a global business with no main office. We live out of our suitcases. We log a lot of frequent flyer miles. <laughs> you know, that's one of the fringe benefits is, I mean, I'm in the back of airplanes as often as I'm in the front of airplanes. So it is definitely a, a global operation. You mentioned, you know, one of maybe a few companies. There, there are a few companies that do what we do. However, none of them really do it the same way. In the business, it's kind of referred as the ferry business or uh, crew leasing. Those are the two terms you'll hear. But where we differ from you know, the other companies that are out there that do this is we're the pilots. We're the guys that do everything. We plan. We have dispatchers on staff. We have a dispatch facility up in Calgary you know, with two full-time 24-7 dispatchers. We have our own accounting team. I mean, obviously, the trip accounting is really complicated. We have vendors all over the world, and you know, each trip might have 40 or 50 vendors providing some sort of service in support of the trip. So, I mean, it's it's a large operation, but you know, we manage it with uh, about 10 people, full-time staff all over the place. Our competitors are more or less crew leasing companies specifically, like so they'll keep a a database of pilots that are available in different parts of the world on different types and they're kind of like a temp agency, right, where they'll farm out trips to these different pilots as needed, but we you know, we have our own in-house crews and we have like an outer circle of contractors that we used for a number of years that we trust. It's a totally different way of flying. So it takes a special breed. 
So if I've got, just because unfortunately we're seeing all of these retired at roughly the same time, say I've got a half dozen 747s and I'm retiring, I, I want to take them from somewhere in Europe to somewhere in you know the desert Southwest of the US, uh, Victorville, Murano, whatever. I call you up and I, I say, I've got six 747s. What else do I ask for? And what do you do on my behalf? So for the most part, our customers are repeat customers. We've been at this for almost 20 years now, and I'll, I'll get into a little later how we kind of started and stumbled upon this unique niche business. But you know, for the most part, our customers are the same people that we talk to and maintain relationships with regularly throughout the year for many years. They know what we ask. They know what they need to tell us. But we do get new calls. And, and sometimes it's just as simple as, like you just said, hey, I have seven or five 747s in, uh, you know, in Moscow and they need to go to Marana for storage. And then I start the questioning process. Uh, what registration are they on, right? That's, that's key. Are they airworthy? Because a lot of the times the aircraft that we ferry around are not technically airworthy. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not safe to fly. It means they're maybe outside a sea check. Maybe they've been sitting for a little while. Maybe they have some lapsed airworthiness directives or service bulletins. And then the main reason that aircraft are not airworthy when they get to us is because, you know, they're not attached to an AOC. And that's really the void that we fill, right? So in order to operate large commercial aircraft, they're operated in accordance with a regulator approved maintenance program. So in Europe, EASA, right, it would be a camo. Others would also be a camo. Or in the US, it would be airlines that are operating with a maintenance manual that's essentially uh, compliant with what the regulator puts forth in the MPD. So those aircraft have to be continually on, I guess a camp would be like the US version of a camo or a camo. So what we are is we're, we're essentially a company that takes possession of those aircraft and legally facilitates the movement of those aircraft under Part 91. So we're always operating under Part 91, but we're either operating on a what's called in Europe or Asia, a PTF, a permit to fly, which is like an exemption from a typical airworthiness certificate. Or in the US, it's called an SFP, you know, which is basically a ferry permit or an SFA, a special flight authorization issued by the FAA. So we gather the airworthiness documents. It's very important that we understand the maintenance status of the aircraft. What registration it's on also makes a difference, right? As, as American pilots, we can fly NREGED aircraft only unless we are validated to a foreign license, which we regularly have to do. And then, of course, you have your transient registrations. And then beyond the regulatory side, we need to know what equipment is installed on the aircraft because the rules change all the time and it depends what airspace we're using. So, you know, if we're up over the North Atlantic, we're in, you know, NAT HLA airspace, the aircraft have to have CPDLC and ADSC in order to be compliant to be in the tracks. Anytime on the oceanic routes, we need to know whether there's HF installed, CPDLC, SATCOM. You know, and then we go down the list and we try to find out what engines are on board, what configuration the aircraft is in, the empty weight. We get a copy of the weight and balance, the avionics. We cross-reference every part number to make sure that they're in compliance with the route of flight. So there's a lot of little details that we start gathering up front. And then we send it to our planning team. And our planning team essentially puts together a list of requirements for the flight. And that process takes anywhere from five days to three weeks. I mean, some of the more complex trips will be prepping for many weeks. That answer was much more complicated than I expected. But when, like, as you were talking, I'm like, of course he needs to know that. Of course that's information that would be relevant. Of, of, right, you know, right. And, and I was watching, and I think maybe Jason or I posted about this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, but we saw 
I forget what aircraft type it was, but it went from South America. I think it was a 737-700 or something like that, but it went from South America to somewhere in Eastern Europe. And I think it was like a lease return or something like that. But it obviously didn't have the equipment on it to fly through the nat tracks because it went the long way around. Right. And so, of course, you know, those are important things that you need to know. So you get all of that information. And then how do you plan for your trip? Because obviously, I mean, you said you're based in Philadelphia and your partners are based elsewhere in the US. Obviously, you need to get to the plane somehow. Is it all planned for, and I guess this question takes on a lot more complication now than it did nine months ago. Oh man, yeah. How do you plan for those trips? I mean, you're obviously building in crew rest and things like that, but it seems like there's a bit more leeway as far as how you do things given the nature of the business. Yeah. So generally speaking, a lot of our customers early on would, would want to piecemeal stuff together and say, you know, well, we'll handle fuel in these stations and you'll handle ground handling in these stations and and so forth. We've gone to a completely inclusive model at this point. So if our customers want to try to kind of break things apart to you know save money in one place or try to maintain some sort of control, we literally don't accept missions like that anymore. We, we need to be fully involved in the planning because we've gotten good at it. You know, it's our guys, that are working on the planning and dispatch side are flying all over the, you know, managing trips coming out of the most remote locations you could possibly imagine. I'm in Siberia all the time. I'm in Kinshasa and the DR Congo. I mean, we're in and out of places where there are serious complexities. So to take any unknowns out of the equation, we operate inclusively and crew travel works that way as well. So, you know, one of the, the rules of the business is nothing ever goes when it's planned. You know, and it never goes earlier. It's always later. Everything delays, which is what makes it so difficult to use pilots on days off and and things like that. You know, managing where our crews are in the world and what they're going to next and and so forth. That is a puzzle that that I literally spend every day trying to solve from the time I wake up at like six thirty in the morning until (laughs) until about noon, and then and then it starts over at three p.m. when something changes. Every trip is unique. And prior to COVID, it was really easy. We wouldn't make any decisions on travel until things were confirmed. And you know, usually that's 24 hours in advance. But now with COVID, this has become unbelievably painstakingly difficult to plan a lot of these trips. We have to rely on private jets to get into a lot of locations. I've been on five private jets in the last year. Prior to this year, I've, you know, we owned a citation for a little while. I guess it's a private jet, but we're talking about like Falcon. You know, we were on a Falcon 7X a couple of weeks ago. We were on a uh, the smaller Gulf Streams, the X Astra jets. I was on one of those. We were on a Falcon 10 going to Juba, South Sudan, kind of in the beginning of COVID. So that's challenging. Of course, every country has different entry requirements for, for customs. Some of them require PCR tests within 24 hours of entry, which is difficult if you're stopping seven times, you know, to get from from one location in the US to maybe India or something. And, and, you know, the airlines have different rules with the capacity is down. I mean, it's a moving target. Every day, the rules are changing in different places. You know, we're regularly changing fuel stops mid-trip just to deal with a, a change in their customs requirements in these cities. Are there any aircraft that you've been dispatched out to, to go recover or test that present more of a challenge than your typical recovery? Yeah. For the most part, we know what we're getting into ahead of time and for better or for worse, right? So certain customers that are in the game of moving airplanes around a lot, like the larger lessors, 
they have it together. We generally rely on what they tell us and take it as gospel and, and then proceed based on what the mission entails. Sometimes we have newer customers that we've never worked with before and the information that we get isn't necessarily clear. But the good thing is that we've developed relationships all over the world with with maintenance facilities, on-site representatives. I mean, I pretty much know, I mean, I, I venture to say I know everybody. I, I know thousands of people, hundreds at least, high hundreds of people around the world that are involved on every level in this process. And so immediately I ask who the tech rep is and and you know we usually have some working rapport from trips previous. And, you know, I get the real poop on the deal, so to speak. What are the problems with this aircraft? But yeah, we've had to overcome things. We'll get to a place. 833 was an interesting one, right? When the the VHFCOM 833 requirements came into play in Europe initially a couple of years ago, we would get out to an airplane where we'd have to move through Europe. And although they tell us that the aircraft are 833 compliant, we go out there and get in the airplane, start up the APU, and you, you find that you're not 833 compliant. That starts a lot of a chain reaction of a lot of logistics that need to be altered with regard to either changing the route, uh, applying for exemptions, or just going home and having them install a new radio set. Are there, you say you have a lot of repeat customers. Is there a typical kind of mission that you do more often than any others? Like, a, is it bringing the aircraft back to the lesser or is it delivering aircraft to a new operator or, or is it just kind of luck of the draw? Yeah, it's it's kind of luck of the draw. I mean, obviously right now, a lot of it is is parking aircraft into long-term storage, right? I mean, a lot of aircraft are coming offline at different countries and, and the lessors are, you know, they've been trying to figure out what they're going to do for the last six months. And really, you know, it comes down to where are these aircraft going to go? They, they pretty much all plan to put them into short-term storage initially. And then you hit that six-month mark and the airplanes need a gear swing and it needs to get inducted into long-term storage. The majority of the aircraft right now are going to storage. Historically, I would say it's 50-50, whether we're recovering something for storage or part out or whether we're delivering. We do both. We really have essentially three different missions. One is the delivery of aircraft. The other is the return of aircraft. And the other is the operational test, the functional test of aircraft. For the last, I would say between 2014 and 2018, the bulk, I would say upwards of 75 to 80% of the aircraft that we dealt with were related to passenger to freighter conversion. So I've become really well-versed in that side of the industry. 737s, all three, well, I guess it's all four variants now, and then seven fives and seven sixes, and soon will be triples. So we've done a lot of post-freighter conversion testing. They're just operational test flights where we go through the manufacturer's test flight procedures, manual reversions, pressurization tests. You know, We test the avionics. We shoot ILS approaches, auto land a lot of times as part of the requirement. So we'll go out there and do the operational test, and then we'll deliver after it comes out of conversion. So that's generally it. We also have a, a DER on staff. We do certification. So we did some modification certifications over the years. I did a modular oil dispersant test, or uh, I guess the word for it is it's a 737 platform and it had tanks and it sprayed oil spill dispersant out over the sea. And so I did a bunch of testing where they were measuring droplet size on that. We've certified flat panel avionics on different platforms like the uh, 7.3 Classic and the MD-80. In those cases, we're working with FAA DERs, you know, through a series of test cards program that sometimes requires five to 10 flights. We've done passenger to freighter conversion certification test flying as well. So 
when airlines go out of business, it, it kind of happens somewhat suddenly at times. And we sometimes see those who are owed money from that airline, like airports specifically, take actions actually to make sure that they're that aircraft from the airline that just went bust doesn't leave until they get their chunk of change. I think yeah. we saw that recently a couple of years ago with Air Berlin, maybe, or maybe it was actually Virgin Australia, where one of the airports actually parked like a tug behind the aircraft to make sure it doesn't disappear overnight, basically. Do you ever encounter any resistance at airports from either the airline that the aircraft is potentially being repossessed from or local entities? Absolutely. Yeah. Not not so much physical, like the parking of tugs. Like usually by the time we're on site, everything is cleared up. There have been, you know, if anything delays us once we're on site, it's typically regulatory in nature, right? So just like you said, if there's outstanding landing fees or an outstanding fuel bill, these get tied to aircraft registrations. And, you know, in theory, we could take off, but what, what prevents us from taking off is them preventing the issuance of the departure permits. So that has happened. And, you know, we have the countries that we look at that are most complicated for, for pulling aircraft out. India is, is very, very complicated. That doesn't surprise me for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right now we're seeing the issues with the Jet Airways aircraft to some degree, although it's a lot smoother than Kingfisher. We were very involved in a lot of Kingfisher returns, I guess is one way to call it. You know, the problem is, is it becomes a legal fight. So anybody who owns the aircraft or has, has a debt note on the aircraft, they have to go through a really extensive process in the courts to be able to release liens and so forth so that the aircraft can be issued a departure permit. India is a problem. Chile has been a problem. Peru has been a problem. There's a few places in South America that are challenging. And then, of course, Malaysia and Indonesia are also very difficult from my experience. So you fly around the world bringing aircraft either to new operators, into storage, you know, returning from lease. You know, you're doing all of this logistical gymnastics. <laughs> yeah. And none of this sounds like a career that you can plan for. Yeah, absolutely not. One of the things that I really wanted to ask you is how did you get here? Man, I'll tell you what, the way I got here is, I guess, just a series of coincidences and, you know, good fortune and bad fortune mixed together. And, but the reason I stay here is it is absolutely the most interesting job in aviation, I think. I mean, you know, I'm sure there, there are some that will argue that point, right? Pilots all are very prideful in what they do. But, you know, where else can you fly 10 different aircraft types? over 10 different days <laughs> to 10 different countries with a beard, new uniform, a polo shirt, and a baseball cap, and nowhere. I, I honestly think it's, you know, it's the ultimate job for an ADD pilot like myself, who always has to see a change of scenery in order to stay interested. But I got here, you know, I, I had a, my background is just a traditional airline pilot background coming out of the civilian world. You know, I was a flight instructor for a number of years. I was in the military, but I was uh, in a non-aviation role. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps. I was a flight instructor. I flew freight. I flew for a few regional airlines. I flew for 10 years at a national airline. And while I was at the national airline, in the very, very beginning, I was flying with a captain that was contracting for a company ferrying airplanes. And we were on a trip and I was flying into Billings, Montana. I remember the trip. And he said, do you want to fly with us to Bucharest next weekend? And I said, well, Sure. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? West, of course. <laughs> you know, I was flying my MD-80 to Billings, Montana, and flying anything to Bucharest sounded fascinating. So yes, do I get paid for this? It was my first question. And not that it mattered. I think I would have done it for free. 
So yeah, you know, he was involved. Uh, the guy that I was flying with was involved in this side of the business, and he was a contract pilot for hire. And he's working for a few different companies, and he kind of turned me on to it. We went and flew two DC 930s to Bucharest out of Arizona, out of Tucson, Arizona. And after doing that, you know, I had, you know, I'd never, I'd never even been overseas at that point. So, I mean, it was something else. I mean, my eyes were wide open, and I said, "Man, this is awesome! I want to do this." So, you know, we ferried the airplanes over there, and of course, I was on the phone with him as soon as we got back. When's the next one? <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's kind of how it started. And and I was picking up trips whenever I could. I would bid reserve at my airline and, you know, I would do my best to see trade days and give myself blocks of five, blocks of seven days off and then pick up whatever I could. And then I realized, you know, if I went out and get another type rating, like for example, a 737, which was my first type rating I paid for myself, I said, well, I'll go out and get a type so that I could have more opportunities to, to fly this kind of work and did that and then started flying more trips. And you know, before I knew it, it was a big part of my life and I was always looking forward to doing more. And I actually flew as a contract pilot for a number of years together with my airline job, which was, of course, major, major juggling. <laughs> I had to uh, establish relationships with the crew schedulers. We were kind of small at the time, the airline that I was working for. And you know, I would first started buying souvenirs for the crew schedulers overseas, and and then it later turned into just straight payoffs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so what's it going to take to uh, trade my schedule out to somebody? So advertise my trip. So yeah, I mean, it started off kind of as a hobby, and then we kind of were doing it so often that the the gentleman, Lloyd Robinson, he's one of my two partners. Him and I started doing it more and more, we formed a little LLC called Jet Test and Transport. And then we would work for the temp agency style crew leasing companies. And we started working for one exclusively, a gentleman by the name of Pete Adler. He was tragically killed in that. You remember that Sukhoi Superjet crash in Indonesia? Yeah, the one with the, I won't get into it, but yeah. Yeah, they flew into Mount Salak there uh, during that demo flight. And so he was a passenger in the back of that that aircraft and he, he sadly died on that. And uh, we were working for him exclusively. He was one of the original JetBlue guys, actually. So after he passed away, the customers that he had were basically left you know, wondering what to do. And we kind of jumped in and started servicing those accounts. And we delivered a bunch of aircraft to Indonesia, a bunch of aircraft to uh, South Africa. And that's really how the company was born. We, we started picking up our own work from there. And over the course of about three or four years, we just, you know, we built up our customer base. We were traveling to the uh, air trade conferences around the world, meeting banks and lessors and kind of drinking beers with them and developing a relationship and a rapport. And before we knew it, they were calling us and then we were proven that we were, we were a better option and, and the business grew. And in 2014, I made the executive decision that this was going to be the career that I pursue. And I left my job. I left my seniority number at the airline where I was in the top 10%. And I started doing it full time. We merged with another company called Avia Crew Leasing, brought on a third partner, Bob Allen, and the rest is history. You know, the three of us just kind of fell into it and the calls keep coming in and, and it's thriving. So if someone is interested in getting into this side of the business or this area of, of aviation, it seems to me that the main thing to do would be to have as many type ratings as you possibly can and be super flexible with your schedule. Yeah. Flexibility is absolutely critical. You know, It's one of those things, like I said before, nothing ever goes on time. So if somebody has an airline job and they decide they want to drop a trip so they have four days off to do it, 
there's no way that I can guarantee that the trip is going to be accomplished in those four days. So flexibility is key. The aptitude for doing it, you know, any pilot is capable of doing it, I guess. But I've found that the non-SCAD folks are are by far the best suited for this mission in that a lot of pilots that are at, you know, no disrespect to anybody at the mainline carriers, but they show up, they get their dispatch release, they go. This business requires just thinking on the fly and just constant changes in the ability to operate tired and worn out and kind of figure out how to overcome obstacles as they come up, you know, in foreign countries where you don't speak the language. But jettest.aero is our website and and we do have a place for pilots to put their names on the database list and and we do sort those by type and I do bring guys on, guys and gals on from time to time to pick up trips when we get super busy. If they're very successful and if it works, if there's a good vibe between the pilot and our company, they they get called more often. So I guess the final question I will ask you, and maybe this is a very open-ended one, but what's the craziest thing that has ever happened? (laughs) Oh, man. I'd imagine the answer to that question has changed over the years, right? It has to have. You know, I, yeah, I think I have developed the memory of a goldfish when it comes to these trips because you know every, every couple of weeks I, something happens. I'm like, man, that was the craziest thing that I've ever seen. It's very irregular. The, even even the routine trips are irregular things happen, right? So, and, and of course, there's plenty of things that I probably shouldn't say that I've seen it done in this, in this highly regulated industry. But yeah, you know, we've had a lot of crazy. Everyone always asks, what's the what's the craziest thing you've ever seen? And and you know, we've delivered planes into for government contractors into Bagram and Afghanistan. We've been in and out of war zones. You know, I mean, I was even crazy stuff that happens on the trips. I was in a taxi once in India that ran into a bunch of pedestrians. And it's, it's you know, crazy things happen when you're, when you're on this side of the business, but it's hard to break it out into just one. Now, I can tell you one of the scariest moments for me uh, was early, early in, in my career doing this stuff. We were taking a DC-9 into Africa and actually it was into Kinshasa it was a DC-930. So, I mean, you really only have about four hours of range in that thing. We were not RVSM as well. So we were going between Casablanca and Dakar, Senegal, and we had a mechanical uplatch physically break in the right main landing gear. And all the hydraulic fluid immediately departed the airplane and the uplatch broke. So the landing gear dropped down into the slipstream on the, the right main landing gear. And it was in my late 20s, I think. So I, I certainly had less of a fear of things than I probably would now in my in my older age. But, you know, of course, the prime concern at that point was fuel. We have a landing gear in the slipstream. It's the middle of the night over the Western Sahara, and our fuel burn has now gone up like 30%. And Bob and my, myself were, were looking, you know, we're essentially, if we had whiz wheels and E6Bs, we'd be on them. We didn't. So instead, we had papers and pencils, and we were trying to figure out, are we going to make it to Dakar? Because if we don't, there's really nowhere else to land. And at one point, I ran the calculations and and I was like, yeah, we're going to make it. We're going to have 500 pounds left. And, and then he was like, I don't think we're going to make it. <laughs> you know, there's literally nowhere else to go. There's no other airport. You know, landing in Western Sahara in the middle of the night is not advised without permission. And I, I'm not even sure there were airports. So, so that was pretty frightening. We ended up landing in Dakar. I think we had 400 pounds on the gauges of fuel remaining. I mean, that's not even really enough for a go around. That was incredibly frustrating and very scary. And, you know, that was a lot of years ago. It stands the test of time. I would say that's probably one of the craziest. Another thing, I wasn't actually on this trip. I was on the ground. It was actually a little wilder being on the ground, but 
Are you guys familiar with Majuro, the Marshall Islands? As familiar as one can be with without having been there, <laughs> I guess. It's essentially it's a shoelace in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's sinking, isn't it? It doesn't that island chain have like a limited number of years before climate change and, and sea level rising obliterates it? Yeah, not so much sinking as the ocean rising around it, you know, like the Maldives and all those little island chains. It's sadly it is going it is disappearing due to climate change. But, you know, I've I've been there many, many times. In fact, I'll be there next week on my way to New Zealand with a 737-400 freighter. So we're taking an aircraft back. My partner and another one of our pilots were taking an aircraft back from Kuala Lumpur, bringing it to the United States. It was a 737-300 passenger aircraft. And the aircraft had a bad APU. So everywhere we went, we had to arrange uh, an air start at every airport in between. And Majuro told us they had an air start. They did have an air start. And they landed, shut down both engines, took fuel, hooked up the air start. And as soon as they pressurized the machine, it literally exploded. It, It burst into a million pieces. And there is nothing else around Majuro. I mean, there's nothing. There's Kwajalein, which is a military installation, which you can land at as an alternate. They did not have an air start that they could spare. You know, Hawaii's a good six-hour flight away. The Philippines, good five hours, five, six hours away. There's there's nothing near there. It's, it's, it's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So they were stuck. <laughs> I mean, they were legitimately stuck. There was no way to get that airplane started without, without air. And so they ended up showing up at the airplane every day trying to convince – well, they were on the phone with me via sat phone. This was, this was a while back, so there was no cell phone service there at the time. Eventually, what we decided to do was we needed to fabricate buddy ho- a buddy start hose. Have you guys ever heard of a buddy start? No, but I can see where you go with it. I've heard of this recently because I feel like there was a story recently of a plane that got stranded and they had to fabricate the same thing. Yeah. It used to be a more mainstream pr- procedure. So, And the reason I remember it is that the airline that I was at that was operating MD-80s, for some reason, it was it was in our procedures. And I remember looking at it when I was in initial ground school back in 2004 saying, people do this? And they said, no, nobody does this. But uh, it was in our manuals anyway. So what it is, it's it's a pneumatic hose. One end of the pneumatic hose has a metal prong on it, right? So what it, that metal prong does is it goes into the pneumatic inlet of an aircraft, which has a flapper valve on it, which prevents air from coming out when nothing is connected to it. So it pushes up the flapper valve and it allows pressurized air from the bleed system to flow through that hose. Then the other end of the hose is hooked into the air start, the pneumatic port on the buddy airplane, the the recipient airplane. And you're essentially able to take air from the bleed system on the donor aircraft and push it over to air on the receiver aircraft in order to start the aircraft. So nobody's produced one of these hoses in a, in a very long time. I ended up getting on the phone you know, for, in the United States. I was at my house, called all the hose manufacturers I could find. I finally found one that was willing to manufacture this for us. They built it within about five days. And then we shipped it to Honolulu. And then what's that? airline that flies fish between Honolulu and Japan and Majuro. It's Pacific something aviation. They used to run 727s. They have 75s now. I called them. They, they agreed to allow us to put this buddy start hose on their fish freighter. And they flew it from Honolulu to Majuro. But then once they got there, the crew said, no, we're not doing, we're not going to give you a buddy start. I mean, we're just delivering the hose. So the crew 
did not, <laughs> oh, it wouldn't man. agree to do it. It wasn't in their manuals. They refused to do it. And so then I had my guys sitting over there in Majuro with a hose, with a, a dead airplane. I think it's like day eight at this point. And we were back to the drawing board. So anyway, long story short, what they ended up doing was they went to multiple ATM machines. I think there's probably four on the island. They withdrew as much cash as they possibly could, and they hung out at the airport until that 727 came back with a different crew, and they paid each of the guys a thousand bucks to look the other way while Buddy started while Buddy started the aircraft. Got it started. It miraculously worked, and they left, and they left with a lot of fresh tuna that they were, they picked up for very cheap on the island. That is kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to send you guys a picture to put it on the crew, the, uh, the oh, notes. Or I'll, I'll tweet it for you. <laughs> They're all sunburned. They look like castaways. They look like Tom Hanks. These are the kind of stories you, you don't get when you just are flying a 737 around. No, that's not going to happen into buildings, is it? Yeah, exactly. No. It, it got to the point where on that trip, if we hadn't found that solution, we were about ready to just push the aircraft off into the ocean and create an artificial reef, you know? Customer wouldn't have been happy, but that solution has been discussed many times on this podcast, and, and so <laughs> if that would have that we would have solved a number of problems with that. Steve Giordano is the director of Jet Test and Transport, a man who has probably, I would say, one of the craziest jobs in aviation, certainly nowadays. Steve, tell us how we can follow some of your travels. Where can we find you on social media and the like? So I am on Twitter. My screen name is uh, sgiordano77, and I post when I can trips when they're in progress, generally trips that I'm on. We also have an Instagram, and that's at Jet Test and Transport. It's also like my personal Instagram, so you can see pictures of my dogs and my family as well. <laughs> but it's, it's mostly aviation stuff. It's mostly trips that we're on. And then we're also on LinkedIn, and I post a whole lot of stuff on LinkedIn, Jet Test and Transport, one word. And we're developing a bit of a following there as well. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. This has been hands down one of my favorite conversations in 95 episodes of doing this podcast. So thanks again for joining us. And we will absolutely be coming back to you in the future because I want to hear more about what you're up to. Well, let's do one from the road. I'd be happy to have you guys along on a flight sometime, both of you. One day. Done. <laughs> we'll get to some crew badges. I'll choose a good one if the customer's okay with it and, and we'll do it. Perfect. Jason and I are both on board the moment we can, you know, go anywhere. Absolutely. I know John Ostrow is waiting to do it too. <laughs> Let's get all three of you guys. Oh dear. I'm Let me for what you wish for. <laughs> Steve Giordano, Jet Test and Transport, thank you so much for joining us. And we have been very lucky to have you on the show. Thanks again. Thanks, Steve. Cheers, guys. Thank you all for listening in 2020, and we hope that 2021 allows us the opportunity to bring you even more great episodes from a variety of places, not just our homes. If you've got questions, comments, or suggestions for the podcast, those are always welcome. Please email us at podcast at fr24.com or find us on Twitter, and uh, we're always happy to hear from, from our wonderful listeners. Also, if you're so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast. That helps other people find the podcast, and we're always keen to make new avgeeks out of people. So, Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you for listening, and we will see you back here on the 15th of January with our first new episode of 2021.